Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Ambassador Danny Diane was born in Buenos Aires, became an entrepreneur in the field of information technology, and then became one of Israel's top diplomats, coming to New York in 2016 to serve as Israel's Consul General. Since August, he has served in a very different role, Chairman of Yad Vashem, Israel's official memorial to the victims of the Holocaust. Mr. Diane is here with us now to discuss how he has shifted gears. Mr. Diane, welcome to People of the Pod. Great to be here with you, Mania. Now, so far as chairman, your focus has been a bit more outward than your predecessors. You've wanted to use technology and education and diplomacy. So what role do you see yourself or Yad Vashem playing in the international diplomatic arena? One of my missions, probably it stems from my being myself a diplomat for a few years, is to put the Holocaust and its legacy and the lessons that we should learn from the Holocaust on the international agenda, on the diplomatic international agenda. I was uh, recently in New York. I had a meeting, uh, quite a long meeting, with the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. And yes, I believe that it's imperative for the world not to forget. And not to forget is not just a cliche. It has implications also to our present days. And I am very passionate about putting those implications on the desks of the world leaders. When you first came to the United States in 2016, you have said that you thought the concerns about anti-Semitism at the time might be overblown. But then, of course, while you were here, we had Pittsburgh, we had Poway, Jersey City, Muncie, 15 murders in all. And your thinking changed. And I'm curious if you could share with our audience what you learned from that wake-up call, if you will. It started slowly. Yes, I, when I arrived, I didn't believe that anti-Semitism in America will be a high priority in my desk. But slowly it started with a series of desecration of uh, Jewish cemeteries. I remember going to the suburb of Philadelphia and then uh, flying to Rochester, New York, to visit desecrated cemeteries. A swastika here, a swastika in Saturn Place Synagogue in Manhattan. I think the first watershed moment was, uh, even before Pittsburgh, was Charlottesville. Charlottesville, Virginia. For me, that was shocking to see the most despicable, the most abhorrent flag ever designed by a man, the Nazi flag being waved in an American city. For me, that was, as I said, a watershed moment. By the way, in most democratic countries, I'm not here criticizing or praising the First Amendment, but in most democratic countries in Europe, Israel, and all over the world, that would have been not only morally abhorrent to do something like that, but also criminally punishable, not in America. And then, although Virginia was not in my jurisdiction as Consul General, I went the following Shabbat to spend the Shabbat in Charlottesville, in the University of Virginia, where those tags, those Nazi tags marched with the torches. And then we had the Shabbat dinner in Hillel in University of Virginia and the following Shabbat in the shul, in the synagogue, in the center of Charlottesville. And I only then grasped how close they were to a pogrom in that shul during the Shabbat morning services. 
And then came Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh I was in my jurisdiction. I arrived immediately to Pittsburgh when and I arrived to Tree of Life Synagogue. The bodies were still lying on the floor of the synagogue. It was a shocking experience. I stayed for the week in Pittsburgh. And then, as you said, Poway and Jersey City, the kosher grocery and the Monsi during the Hanukkah celebration. You know, world leaders uh, arrive when they come to visit official visits to Israel, they visit Yad Vashem. And I tell them, what are my two main lessons from the Shoah, from the Holocaust? The first one, the necessity, the vital necessity, the existential necessity of a Jewish state, independent, robust, secure. I tell them, and I tell you, figuratively, we're all in the St. Louis ship uh, going from port to port to dock to dock and being rejected everywhere until they went back to Europe and were murdered. That wouldn't have happened if Israel would have existed then. And the second, and that is relevant to your question, the second is don't underestimate anti-Semitism even when it is small. We have the experience that our brethren and the world in the 30s of the previous century didn't have. We know that anti-Semitism can grow to monstrous dimensions. And that the same applies also to regimes, not only to parts in society, to regimes that are genocidal, called the annihilation of Israel. Take them seriously, confront them immediately and forcibly. That for me is the, probably the actual lesson that we learn from the Shoah. As we know, anti-Semitism takes on many different forms. Holocaust denial and Holocaust distortion are two of those forms, very different but related problems. You have said that, thankfully, Holocaust denial is limited to the fringe elements on social media. That was not the case 30 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of Holocaust denial and how progress has been made since those 30 years? Yeah, I think that, as you said, you're right, in the 80s, 90s, it was a bon ton. It was fashionable to even to deny the Holocaust, even in intellectual circles, mainly in Europe, but uh, not only there. Since then, we have a few developments that have helped to thwart that fallacy of Holocaust denial. One is the famous trial in London when David Irving, the, the Holocaust denier, sued actually Professor Deborah Lipstadt and the verdict decision by the judge was really devastating in favor of Professor Lipstadt, and that was very impactful. I'm curious, we see a lot of anti-Zionism now in academic circles. Are those the same forces at work? There is an overlapping, but not necessarily the same forces. But definitely there is overlapping. And you know, you said uh, right so that we face now a no less disturbing phenomena that the Holocaust distortion. And uh, I see uh, mainly two facets or two ways of doing that. The first is the distortion that says the following. Of course, the Holocaust occurred. And of course, that there were extermination camps and gas chambers and everything, and six million Jews were murdered. But governments or political parties or uh, strong social forces in different European countries say, but it was the Germans, in some countries collaborators, but in my country, each one of them says, in my country, there were no collaborators. 
All my countrymen were uh, tzaddikim, were righteous among the nations. Well, unfortunately, we know that that is wrong. In every single country in Europe, there were collaborators. By the way, they were also righteous among the nations. But unfortunately, the number of collaborators were, and for sure, the number of indifferent persons was much higher than the righteous among the nations. So we see that way of distorting the Holocaust, not only in Eastern Europe, also in Western Europe. And we should be very clear in saying that that is unacceptable. I was in Ukraine lately for the 80th anniversary of the massacre in Babi Yar. I opened their conference and I said that we welcome Ukraine to the family of democratic nations and we are very glad by the acknowledgement of the Jewishness of the victims of the Holocaust and in Babi Yar specifically, but they still have an extra mile to do in the issue of recognizing collaboration by Ukrainians in the killing of Jews. The other way of distorting the Holocaust and no less outrageous is comparing Israel deeds with the deeds of Nazi Germany. That is, again, a total distortion both of the Israeli actions and a trivialization of Nazi Germany. Is it equally dangerous to do what some Americans are doing, and that is comparing mask mandates, vaccine mandates to Nazi policies during the Holocaust? Of course, that's its trivialization of the Holocaust par excellence. You know, it's completely out of touch with reality. It's offending. We heard a few not long ago commentator on Fox News, Lara Logan, comparing Dr. Fauci with Josef Mengele, the infamous, I wouldn't even call him doctor. So that is a trivialization of the Holocaust that one of its worst manifestations. There is definitely a, a growing feeling of despair over the loss of firsthand witnesses to the atrocities of the Holocaust. What can we do to preserve the witness testimonies? And why do we need to tread carefully in that regard? Well, you know, yes, unfortunately, for natural reasons. Uh, we are not far from the day in which we will have no actual witnesses amongst us. That may explain why we in Yad Vashem, for instance, are so obsessed. I wouldn't even, that word obsessed, I'm not ashamed of that. We're documenting and gathering documents about the Shoah really all over the world because uh, ultimately the research and the documentation will be the witnesses in the coming generations. Of course, we take uh, testimonies. It's so important that Holocaust survivors give testimony. But yes, we will have to be much more innovative, much more creative in ways to convey the message. Our work in those years when that period comes will be much more challenging, much more difficult, but much more important, much more vital because the entire responsibility on telling the story will be on our shoulders. Is there a wrong way to preserve those legacies? Are there risks to doing that? Have there been mistakes made? We have to be very careful not to cross a line of uh, vulgarization of the memory. A lot of persons come to me very frequently with ideas of virtual reality, even today, uh, I was approached by a person that suggested to me to do a, through virtual reality, to enter a, a train wagon, to create the, the atmosphere, to live the experience of the 
transports to Auschwitz. I think it's extremely dangerous to do those things, not only because it may be unrespectful to the victims that actually underwent that terrible experience. It can cross the line between preserving the memory and vulgarization of the Shoah. I remember a local Holocaust museum doing holograms where they capture the image of the survivors talking about their experiences. Does Yad Vashem include any of that? No, we don't, at least for the time being. You know, I am new in my position and I am in the process of re-examining a lot of things. So the fact that we didn't do it till now doesn't mean we will not do it in the future. But holograms are problematic because you use the holograms usually in a kind of fake conversation with the survivor. And sometimes there is a danger of distorting his intentions, his or her intentions. And I cannot stress how important accuracy is, because if the moment an institution like Yad Vashem will deviate from full accuracy, full historical accuracy, and, and put even a small amount of fiction into a testimony or a document or an exhibit, we will legitimize Holocaust distortionists. I saw some of the contestants in the Miss Universe pageant made a point of going to Yad Vashem shortly after they arrived in Israel for the upcoming pageant. Why should visitors to Israel make a point of going to Yad Vashem? I spoke about us being obsessed in documenting and in finding documents and names of the Holocaust victims. We have uh, gathered in now 4.8 million names of uh, victims. Why are we so adamant in doing that. And most people think that it is because we have a responsibility for the future to convey the information and for the legacy. And that's only a partial answer. I think that we have an obligation to the victims. You know, Mania, think about a young Jewish girl, let's say 12 years old, that lived in Bialystok, Poland, or in Lithuania, and the girl from Bialystok, let's call it Sara or Hannah or, or Zelda, was pushed into the shul, into the synagogue of her city and crammed together with the entire congregation and the synagogue set fire. I know for sure, as a fact, that in her last moments, she expected the Jewish people to know about her, to know her name, to know the name of her parents, to know how she looked like, to know what were her aspirations in life. So we tried to gather that information. What was her name? What were her parents? How did her picture? Letters she wrote as a child to friends to know what she wanted to do in life. We have an obligation to the victims, not only to the future generations. You know, I see Yad Vashem as fulfilling four uh, missions. The first is to mourn. Yad Vashem is not a place to raise flags. Yad Vashem is a place to bow heads, to shed tears, no shame to shed tears in Yad Vashem and to reflect and pray silently. The second is to know, as I told you, we have an obligation to know everything. The victims deserve it and our yet unborn children and grandchildren deserve it because it's to the past and to the present. The third is to try to, again, without crossing very delicate lines, to feel. You know, Mania, we say in Pesach, in the Agadah, we read in Bechol Dor Vador Chayav Adam Lirot Etatzmok Ve'ilu Yatsa Mi In every generation has a person to see 
himself or herself as if she or he personally left Egypt. I think that since 1945, in every generation, a decent person has to see himself or herself as if he or she personally were liberated from Auschwitz. And we have an obligation to try to relate, to feel, to relate to the victims, again, without crossing very delicate lines. And the fourth that we already spoke about in the fourth is to learn lessons. My lessons are about the importance of the state of Israel and the importance to combat anti-Semitism. Mr. Diane, thank you for joining us and thank you for helping the world remember. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with us this week is my dear friend and colleague, Laura Shaw-Frank, director of the William Petchik Contemporary Jewish Life Department. Laura, welcome. Great to be here, Manya. This week, we are marking 34 years since Freedom Sunday, the largest Jewish rally in our nation's history. Now, as many listeners know, AJC CEO David Harris was the national coordinator of that rally. In just a little over a month, he managed to convene thousands of American Jews to Washington, D.C. to call for the freedom of Jews in what was then the Soviet Union. Laura, you were in that crowd. Tell us about that day. So I want to just go back a little bit before the rally to talk about the time I grew up in. When the rally happened in 1987, I was a sophomore in college. But when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, the Soviet Jewry movement was a very, very hot issue for the Jewish community. And it was a very hot issue for me growing up in the conservative movement in New Jersey and in my youth group and in my camp and in my Jewish day school. So I walked around wearing a bracelet, which had the name of a Soviet refusenik on it. His name was Alexander Peretsky. And I had the bracelet on all the time. I wouldn't even take it off when I was in the shower because I didn't want it ever to leave my mind and heart. And so I had that bracelet on and we all had Soviet kids as our twins for our bar and bat mitzvahs. There was like an empty chair up on the bima and we spoke about our Soviet twins in our bar and bat mitzvahs. And this was all because these people were not permitted to leave the Soviet Union. So it was very, very much in my consciousness. And when I got to college, I got involved with an organization called Triple SJ, the Student Struggle for Soviet Jewry. And we did all kinds of consciousness raising about the Soviet Jewish community that wasn't permitted to leave. And we did uh, educational programs on campus and rallies and all kinds of things. And of course, when we found out about the rally taking place in Washington, we knew that we had to go. And we sent, as I remember, it was more than one bus full of students from Columbia where I was an undergraduate. And there were a few memories I wanted to share. The first is on our way down, we were driving down the New Jersey Turnpike and literally the entire Turnpike was buses. I still remember it like it was yesterday. The entire turnpike was buses headed down to the rally. And then the other thing that I remember about the rally is that literally every person I ever knew in my life was there. Like every camp friend, every youth movement friend, every one of my relatives, everyone that my parents knew, just everyone was there. It was like the place to be. And the last thing I want to say is that I remember just feeling this enormous sense of purposefulness and Jewish pride being there. It was just this incredibly uplifting experience. Like you felt your heart soaring when you were looking around at all of these people. 
And Nantan Sharansky spoke. He had been released from the Soviet Union a year and a half or so earlier. I was actually in Israel when he was released and came to Israel. And hearing him speak freely from this podium in the free United States of America was just the most extraordinary thing. So it was a very, very memorable day for me. It sounds like it was a really unifying moment for American Jewry, that it it really brought everyone together. Is there or has there since been a similar moment like that? You know, I wish I could say that there has been, but I kind of don't think there has. There have been moments that have unified us for sure. I think that the Ethiopian Jewish airlifts have unified the American Jewish people. It was like one of those was actually before the rally and one of them was after. I think those were moments when the Jewish people were unified. And I think that when Israel is in danger, that unifies the Jewish people. But to have a moment like that where there was just no dissension, everyone was there from right to left, from religious to secular, every denomination, every stripe together, I don't think we've had that since. In some way, is that good news? I mean, certainly we want more unity in the American Jewish community. That's always a good thing. But has there not been a reason to band together? Um, Has there not been a threat, right? Has there not been a similar level of jeopardy for Jews that has called for that kind of, that level of unity? Yes, I think that that's right, Manya. I think that thankfully we're in a moment now where most Jews, the vast majority of Jews, are living in freedom, are living in the developed world in freedom. And Israel, thank God, is safe and secure. Not that Israel doesn't need our support, but in general, Israel is safe and secure and stable and economically self-sufficient. And we are in some ways in this moment of, of renaissance or glory for the Jewish people. And I think that Although we're now in a period of rising anti-Semitism for the American Jewish community, thankfully it hasn't reached an existential threat. And hopefully with the work of AJC and so many others who are committed to fighting it, we will never reach the level of existential threat. So I guess in some ways it is good news that we haven't reached that level of crisis. Although I will say I really wish that the Jewish people could unite in moments of triumph as well as moments of crisis. I wasn't alive in 1967. I understand that that was another moment where the Jewish people did unite and that was a moment of triumph. So maybe we'll have a moment where we can unite in triumph as well. Well, may we continue to live in joy and prosperity and freedom. And on that note, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Ku Kong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 